Michael's story. Very bad day. Jamie came home from school and said, I had a horrible day and everybody hates me. Normally I would have argued with him. How can a preschooler have a horrible day when all they do is play games and paint and have story time? It's not like they have to fill out tax forms or get stuck in traffic. And it's not true that everybody hates him. I would have started listing all the people who love him, his parents, sisters, grandma and grandpa, friends. This time I just gave my most sympathetic ugh and put my arm around him. He sat down and told me that his friend Max was really annoying. Again, I bit my lip so as not to remind him that he could be annoying too sometimes and that Max was his best friend. He proceeded to tell me a long, sad story about how he and Max used to play Star Wars together. But now Max was playing Ghostbusters with a new friend and didn't want to play with him anymore. And that he, Jamie, didn't want to play Ghostbusters because that was stupid and how do you play that game anyway? And now all the kids are playing it. He talked himself out and then wandered away for a snack. I was amazed because he's never talked to me like that before. I had no idea preschoolers had such complicated social lives. I felt sad for him, but I think he'll be able to work it out. He was certainly much cheerier after telling me all his woes. It was the end of a session and we had almost run out of time, but Tony insisted on telling this story before we left. Tony's story. Sisters are doing it for themselves. We were coming back from getting takeout from a burger place, and Ella really wanted to start eating in the car. We were all tired, and Ella's whining was driving me nuts. I explained that she could have the food just as soon as we got home, but we were not going to have it in the car because of the mess. We were going back and forth and getting nowhere when her twin sister Jenna said, I know, Ella. Sometimes it's hard to wait. It was a watershed moment. I said, You're so right. Sometimes it is hard to wait, isn't it? Ella said, Yeah, it's hard to wait. Things were calmer for the rest of the drive home. Jenna understood that her sister needed empathy, not reasoning, and it was just funny that a four-year-old knew what to do when her own mother didn't. I consoled myself that she was modeling an empathetic response from me on a previous day. They already know at age four what I'm just learning now. Included with this program, you'll find a handy reminder PDF. Sure, you've done all this listening, but that doesn't mean that you can think straight when you're in the trenches under fire. When the baby is crying, the milk is spilled, the toast is burning, and the dog is running off with the diaper, you'll need to be able to review your options at a single glance. Reminder. Tools for handling emotions. Number one. Acknowledge feelings with words. You were looking forward to that play date. How disappointing. It can be so frustrating when train tracks fall apart. Number two, acknowledge feelings with writing. Oh, no, we don't have the ingredients we need. Let's make a shopping list. You really want that underwater Lego set. Let's write that down on our wish list. 
Number three, acknowledge feelings with art. You seem so sad. Draw a stick figure with big tears, or simply hand over a crayon or pencil. You are this angry. Make angry lines or rip and crumple paper. Number four. Give in fantasy what you cannot give in reality. I wish we had a million billion more hours to play. Number five. Acknowledge feelings with almost silent attention. Ah.、Oh. Mmm. Ooh. Huh. Very important points. All feelings can be accepted. Some actions must be limited. Sit on those buts. Substitute, the problem is, or, even though you know. Match the emotion. Be dramatic. Resist the urge to ask questions of a distressed child. Chapter Two. Tools for engaging cooperation. Feeling schmeelings, she has to brush her teeth. Getting kids to do what they have to do. Joanna. Enough with all the talk about feelings. It's lovely to know we're enhancing our children's confidence and sense of self, but does that actually get us through the day? Not entirely. We have to get our kids to do things. Get in the bathtub. Brush teeth. Sit still so I can get your shoes on. Climb into the car seat. Now or we're going to be late. Go to bed, please. And sometimes, it's more important to not do things. Don't hit your sister. Stop throwing your food. Don't take those shoes off when I just got them on. Don't stick your fork in the electrical socket. Don't eat the lollipop that just fell in the dirt. Stop pulling the dog's tail. Don't climb the refrigerator. Those are shelves, not steps. Endless reminding, nagging, cajoling, demanding—that's the reality of being a parent. So our kids get told what to do, all day long. That's the reality of being a kid. And they should listen because we're in charge, and we're just trying to do what's best for them and keep them from killing themselves, or at least protect them from stinkiness, rotted teeth, malnutrition, and exhaustion. The problem is, nobody likes to be ordered around. A parent in one of my groups put it succinctly: Even if I want to do something, as soon as somebody tells me to do it, I don't want to do it anymore. I recently experienced this phenomenon of irresistible contrariness as an adult, when I saw a stack of books at my local library with a note taped to the wall behind them. The note read, "Do not touch these books." I presumed there was a reasonable explanation. No doubt the books had not been put into the system yet. Still, I couldn't help myself. I veered toward the stack, stuck out my finger, and touched the books. Ha! So there. I felt a spark of childish glee. It's human nature. 
We're stuck with it, and our children are no different. We resist being told what to do. Direct orders provoke direct opposition. When we give children commands, we're working against ourselves. Where we had hoped to inspire obedience, we've just stirred up rebellion in their little hearts. I like to start this workshop session with a few commands for the participants. Hey, you two in the back, no talking. Don't touch those books. Do you see your name on them? I toss in some blame and accusation. Who left this bag in the doorway? Someone's going to trip on it. And on to some name calling. You forgot to bring a pencil again? You're such an airhead. Don't interrupt, you're being rude. A few warnings. Don't balance your laptop on the edge of your knees like that. You're going to drop it. Don't move the chairs while you're on your cell phone. Pay attention to what you're doing or you're going to hurt somebody. Some sarcasm. One blue sock and one greed sock. Nice. Did you unplug your brain this morning? A few rhetorical questions. Why do you keep your bag in such a mess that you can't find anything? Why can't you wait your turn to speak? A threat. Listen, people, if these side conversations don't stop immediately, we're not going to get through all the material, and I'm going to have to keep you here for an extra half hour. And, of course, a lecture. You're ten minutes late again. This is becoming a pattern with you. Do you realize what happens when you're late? You're holding up the whole class. Everyone else made the effort to get here on time. Some of us are paying babysitters so we can sit here waiting for you. How would you feel if someone did that to you? You know, being punctual is a life skill, and it's a skill you better learn if you want to be successful in life. You need to start making a little more effort. Get yourself organized ahead of time. Don't leave everything until the last minute. The group stares at me murderously. So, I force myself to ask cheerfully, is anyone feeling cooperative? The staring continues. I'm getting the silent treatment. I'm feeling a little uneasy, so I try a different tack. Do we really talk to kids this way? Finally, someone speaks. Sure we do. Can anyone think of examples of what we actually say to children? Now the floodgates open. Here are some of the responses from the group. Commands. Is that your bag? Well, pick it up, now. Clean up those blocks. Stop making that noise. Turn off the TV. Leave your brother alone. Wash your hands. Don't touch the stove. You just interrupted her. Say you're sorry. Blaming and accusing. If you had screwed the top on the apple juice first instead of trying to grab the last cupcake, it never would have spilled. Name calling. Hey, come help with this cleanup. You helped make the mess. Don't be so lazy. Your friends always share their toys when you visit them. Don't be selfish. You're pulling the cat's tail. That's just plain mean. Warnings. Careful, you're going to get hit by a car. 
Stop wiggling, you'll fall off that stool. You'll make yourself sick if you eat all that candy. Watch it, you'll burn yourself. Get down from there, you're going to fall. Sarcasm. You left your backpack at your friend's house? That was smart. You knocked down your little sister just so you could be first. That was nice. Rhetorical questions. Why would you pinch the baby like that? Why did you throw the ball in the kitchen when I just told you not to? Is that what you're supposed to be doing right now? What is the matter with you? Lectures. It's not nice to grab. You wouldn't want anybody to grab something from you, would you? Then you shouldn't grab from anyone else. Nobody's going to want to play with you if you keep this up. You need to learn to be more patient. Threats. If you don't put these toys away by the time I count to ten, I'm throwing them in the garbage. If you don't get in the car right now, I'm leaving without you. If you don't finish your vegetables, there'll be no dessert. If you don't get your seatbelt on and stop fussing, I'm not taking you anywhere. Get your helmet on now or the bike is going back in the garage. The group was a little taken aback by their ability to compile such an impressive list so easily, but they weren't ready to throw out the entire arsenal. Tony was the first to protest. What you're calling a threat, I call a consequence. I'm just telling my child what will happen if he doesn't listen. He needs to know. It's so tempting to toss in a threat, I agreed. It does seem kind of, um, informational. If you do this, I'll do that. The problem with a threat is that it can come awfully close to sounding like a dare. When a parent says, if you throw sand one more time, you're going straight home. The child doesn't seem to hear the whole sentence. What the child seems to hear is, throw sand one more time. The threat has become an irresistible challenge. What if you use the word, please? Sarah asked. That's simply good manners. I tell my children what they need to do, but I say it politely. Sometimes to soften the sting of an order, we toss in a please at the end. The problem here is similar to that of wings on an ostrich. They seem like the right sort of attachment, but nevertheless, that bird is not going to fly. It's just too heavy. Please is best reserved for standard etiquette, like please pass the salt. When you ask a child to please hold still, or get in his car seat, or put away his blocks, you're not really making a gentle request. You're not truly willing to accept no thank you as an answer. If I started the session by telling you all to please sit still and stop talking, how many of you would feel warm and cooperative? I asked the group. No one raised a finger. Someone sighed. The feeling in the room was clear. Everything we say is wrong. It was time to move on before these people got too frustrated with me and staged a rebellion of their own. I plunged ahead. So what can we do when we need the cooperation of a small, illogical, and unruly creature such as a human child? If we can't tell him what to do, what's left? Tool number one, 
Be playful. The first tool I have for you is not one that can be used in all weather. You have to feel at least partly sunny. Even though it's a part-time tool, I'm offering it to you as a first resort because of its unusually powerful effect. Let's call it the art of being playful. What's that you say? You don't feel playful when children are being uncooperative? And what does that word mean anyway? Isn't it a bit vague? All valid criticisms, and yet, if you try it, you just might find you like it. So, if you're in the mood, keep listening. One technique sure to be a hit with the seven and under set is to make an inanimate object talk. Lonely shoes can whine. I feel cold and empty. Won't somebody put a nice warm foot in me? Hungry toy boxes can demand. Feed me blocks. I want the green crunchy ones. Cups can screech. Don't leave me out here by myself. I gotta get in the sink with my buddies. Toothbrushes can use their best tough guy voice. Uh, let me in there. I think I seen a germ hiding behind that molar. All of these clamoring objects will bring a smile to a child's face and a more willing attitude toward participating in the mundane chores of life. Another playful technique is to turn a boring task into a challenge or a game. Instead of, look at this mess. You're supposed to put your dirty clothes in the basket. Try, how many seconds do you think it will take to toss all your dirty clothes in the laundry basket? 20? Oh, dear. I don't think so. That is way too much work to do in just 20 seconds. Okay, I guess it's worth a try. Ready, set, go. Holy cow, you did it in 10. You beat the clock. Instead of, get in the car now. I don't want to have to ask you again. Try. We have to get all the way from the door to the car. Let's try hopping. It won't be easy. Instead of, if you don't get into pajamas right now, there will be no story time. Try. Do you think you can get your PJs on with your eyes closed? Beyond talking objects and making a game out of a chore, the field is wide open. Experiment with your silly side. Instead of just telling a child what to do in your regular voice, talk like a duck or a sports announcer or your child's favorite cartoon character or sing it with a country twang. Devise ways of leaving a friend's house that involve avoiding lava, quicksand, or alligators. Instead of telling a classroom of preschoolers to sit still and be quiet, have them freeze like statues. Tell them they're as still as an iceberg or as quiet as a little mouse hiding in the grass from a cat. Give them an energy pill, a single raisin carefully placed in the palm, to give them the strength to clean up. Almost any tedious task can be transformed if it's infused with the spirit of play. The group looked at me with various expressions, ranging from intrigued to annoyed. Michael was smiling. I could tell he was already coming up with a wild idea. 
Maria looked a little bit exasperated. Aren't there times when a child should just do what his parent tells him to? Do I really have to make every little thing into a game? You're making me feel tired. In my experience, if you can muster up a little playfulness, it actually takes less energy than having to deal with all the whining and resistance you get from a direct order. It also sets a nice tone. Even if orders are more efficient, the mood will be brighter with playfulness. It makes people feel more loving and cooperative. You're also teaching kids how to turn a tedious task into a pleasant activity. We can grumble and mope over a sink full of dirty dishes, or we can put on some lively music, work up the suds, and dance and sing our way through the mess. That's a valuable life skill. Michael's story. Clothing with character. Kara hates to get dressed in the morning. Now my wife and I offer different characters to dress her. Roger Robot, that's me, uses a mechanical voice and jerky motions. This arm must be inserted in sleeve. Then there's Kermit the Frog, who talks in a Kermit voice. Mrs. Meany, that's my wife, is rough and screechy. What? A child without clothes? That is terrible. Get over here now. Gentle Jennifer, also my wife, is extremely sweet and says things like, Oh dear, could I possibly put this sock on your poor little foot? Oh, I'm so terribly sorry. I bumped your poor little toe with my nose. Silly Sally always gets it wrong and has to be corrected by my daughter. Does this sleeve go over the toes? I think the sock should be on your ear, right? Obviously, my wife's favorite character is Mrs. Meany, and unfortunately, she doesn't get too many requests for that one. But Kara is excited to get dressed in the morning now. She doesn't run away from us anymore. That's maddening when we're running late, which is pretty much always. Tony's story. Fly away home. I've always had a heck of a time getting the twins out of the car and into school in the morning. They get engrossed in arguments with each other. They insist on counting each step they take or picking up pebbles, whatever it takes to make us late. Last week, they were talking about dragonflies, so I said, let's pretend we're a family of dragonflies and we're flying to our home in the classroom. We all spread our wings and flew through the parking lot and into school. It worked so well, I did it again the next day. Then we pretended to be butterflies, then ladybugs, then hawks. The next week, as soon as I got out of the car, the security guard in the parking lot raised his eyebrow at me and asked, What are you this morning? I felt a little embarrassed, pretending to fly in public, but hey, it beats yelling at the kids. Maria's story. The Very Hungry Nail Clipper. Benjamin always objects to having his fingernails clipped. He doesn't like to sit still. Last night... I pretended the nail clippers were talking to him. Oh, Benjamin, I'm so hungry. Won't you let me have a little bite of your pinky nail? He stuck out his little finger, and the nail clipper had a delicious snack. Oh, thank you. Yum, yum. This is such a tasty little nail. May I have another one? He stuck out his other fingers. Then he had a very serious conversation with the nail clippers about his dinosaurs while I finished clipping his nails. 
The nail clipper was very interested in the biting abilities of the vegetarian and carnivorous dinosaurs. Benjamin was happy to expound on his favorite topic. Tool number two, offer a choice. The second tool for engaging cooperation is to substitute a choice for a command. Choice, you ask? What choice? There is no choice. She has to get dressed. She's not going to school in her pajamas. He has to wash his hands. He's not eating a sandwich right after playing with frogs. She's not riding her bike without a helmet. It's simply not negotiable. I'm not suggesting that you make uncomfortable compromises or that you put a three-year-old in charge of the whole show. I'm just saying that human beings, including small ones, like to have some input and control over their lives. There are plenty of options we can offer our children, short of handing over the car keys and the credit card. Instead of, get in the car now, try, would you like to bring a toy or a snack for the ride? Do you want to take giant steps to the car or do you want to skip to the car? Instead of, if I have to tell you one more time to get into that tub, try, do you want your bath with bubbles or boats? Would you like to hop to the tub like a bunny or crawl like a crab? Instead of, get your homework started, no more excuses, try, would it be easier to get your homework over with right away and be free of it, or would you rather have a snack first? Do you want to do it in the kitchen while I cook dinner or in your room where it's quiet? One parent had great success with, do you want to do your homework on top of the table or under the table? I think you can guess which her daughter chose. Instead of, pajamas now, try. Do you want to put your pajamas on the regular way or inside out? Do you want to jump five more times before putting on your pajamas or ten? Okay, let's make them big ones. One, two, three. Each of these statements says to your child, I see you as a person who can make decisions about your own life. And every time your child makes a small decision, She's getting valuable practice for some of the bigger decisions she'll be making down the road. Joanna's story. Choice cuts. This choice thing doesn't always go according to script. When I told Dan that he was not allowed to give the carpet a haircut with his scissors, I followed up with a perfectly reasonable choice. You can cut paper or cardboard. You decide. Dan's response? No. Sometimes a parent must persist. I don't want my carpet cut. What else can you cut? Now I had his interest. He looked around. I can cut string. I can cut tissues. I can cut the laundry. I know, weeds. He ran outside to trim the dandelions. Notice that I put Dan to work making up his own choices. Why should I have to do all the mental gymnastics? Tony's story, picture perfect. 
We had our relatives over for a family reunion. My cousin wanted to get a group photograph, but her four-year-old daughter refused to cooperate. She wouldn't sit with the group, no matter what her mom said. I don't know why. I think she just started out not wanting to sit still, and then it became a battle of wills. I went over to her and said that I needed her to decide if we should take the picture with everybody standing or with the kids sitting on the picnic table. She stopped in her tracks and stared at me. Then she said, Picnic table, and went over and sat down. I was the hero of the day. Michael's story. A tub of trouble. I've been offering Kara choices about the tub. It worked really well to ask her if she wanted a carrot stick or an apple slice while she took a bath. I know it sounds unusual, but she likes to eat in odd places. The mistake I made was the day we had pancakes for dinner. Kara still had a pancake in her hand, so I asked if she wanted a plain bath or a bath with pancakes. You know what she chose. Don't do what I did. Pancakes dissolve surprisingly quickly in water. I don't even want to talk about the syrup. It was a pretty big mess. My wife was mad when she got home and saw the bathtub, but you'll be proud of me because I accepted her feelings. I said, I can see that you're really upset about this mess. I'm taking care of it as soon as Kara's asleep. Just back out slowly and pretend you never saw this. Joanna's story. Kids take over. Three-year-old Dan and his friend Chris were playing with plastic animals. The tiger and the lion were fighting. Dan was pressing the tiger down on Chris's hand, which was holding the lion. Chris was using his other hand to press down on Dan's hand. Let go! You're hurting my hand, cried Chris. You're hurting my hand. I have to hurt your hand because you're holding my hand down. But you're holding my hand down. Neither boy was willing to yield. Voices were becoming angry and tearful. I sighed. I'd have to step in and break up the wild animal fight. Just as I started to open my mouth to interfere, I heard Dan say, Christopher, here are our choices. We can keep on playing with the animals and not hold each other's hand down, or we can play with something else. Which do you choice? Christopher replied, let's play with something else. They both got up and left the animals in the dirt. Very important point. Don't turn a choice into a threat. When giving a choice, it's important that both options are pleasant. Satisfying as it may be to say, you can come with me now, or I can leave you here for the wild dogs to chew on. You decide, honey. Try to resist that impulse. Also not qualifying for the Child's Choice Award is this father's statement in which both options are unpleasant. I can spank you with my right hand or my left. It's up to you. Tool number three, put the child in charge. A common complaint among parents of toddlers is, he won't do what he's told because he just wants to be in control. My response is, then let's put him in control. Whenever you can put your child in charge of his own behavior, you come out ahead. 
Whether you're a toddler, a teen, an adult, or an entire country, you probably react badly to being controlled. Human beings of all ages yearn for autonomy and independence. How about that Boston Tea Party? If it had been a bunch of toddlers, we would have called it the Boston Temper Tantrum. So let's think about how we can put our kids in control. Anna gave me a quizzical look. But wait, isn't that like letting the animals run the zoo? Well, yes, sort of. But it doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. You can put the lions in charge of their own turf without inviting them into the snack bar and gift shop, at least not until they're ready to exercise a certain level of restraint. As a parent, you can define the job that needs to get done, but let your child be in charge of the details. Delegate. It's less work for you in the long run, and your child will enjoy some independence. For example, if you find yourself arguing with your child every morning about whether or not he needs a jacket, you may want to make a temperature chart. Joanna's story. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. When Dan was five, he refused, on general principle, to wear a coat. The dialogue was boring and predictable. You need a coat. It's cold outside. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And so on. One afternoon when I was feeling artistic, I sat down with some paper, a pack of markers, and a large outdoor thermometer. I called Dan over. We need some pictures for this thermometer. We made a bathing suit and stuck it to the thermometer at the 90-degree mark. We made a coat and taped it to the 40-degree mark. Hat and mittens at 32, ready for snow. Then we filled in the rest with a t-shirt at 70, sweatshirt at 60, and a jacket at 50. We covered the drawings with clear tape to make them rainproof and hung the thermometer outside. A good hour's work, but well worth it. From now on, Dan was the weather master. Instead of telling him what to wear, I asked him to check the thermometer so that he could tell me what to wear. Once he was in charge, his protests dissolved. Sarah was bursting to speak. I have another good way to use this tool. You can put kids in charge of time. You know how we're always nagging our kids? Ten minutes left to play, or hurry up, we have only five minutes till the bus comes, and they never seem to get it. We have this handy little timer in our classroom. When you twist the dial, it shows a slice of red. So if you set it for 30 minutes, half the clock face is red. 15 minutes, a quarter of the clock face is red. The slice of red gets smaller as the time gets used up, so the kids can see time go by. That way, we can put them in charge of taking turns or knowing when it's time to clean up instead of nagging them. I've actually heard them warn each other, we have to hurry. There's only a sliver of red left. I wish I'd had one of those timers when my children were young. Time is such a difficult concept for children to grasp. 
It's this abstract, invisible, intangible thing that adults are obsessed with. We live in a world of minutes and seconds ticking by in an alarming rate. A world of, go, 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 we're going to be late. Kids inhabit a different world. Their world is, oh, hey, look at that spider hanging from the ceiling. Ooh, we could pull these cushions off the couch. I wonder if a dog will lick applesauce off the carpet. We get furious with them for not sharing our urgency. I love the idea of putting a child in charge of time. Joanna's story on the nature of time. Years ago, I had the following conversation with my son's four-year-old friend, Noah. Me, Noah, Dan has to leave in five minutes. Noah, how much time is five minutes? Is it long or short? Me, well, that depends on how you feel. If you're having fun, it feels like a short time. If you're in pain, like if you had a clothespin stuck on your nose, it feels like a long time. Me, a few minutes later, Noah, why do you have a clothespin stuck to your nose? Noah, so we can play for a longer time. Tool number four, give information. You don't always need elaborate preparation to put your child in the driver's seat. Often it's enough to give her simple information instead of an order. Here's how it works. You give your child information. Then she has a chance to figure out for herself what to do. Not only do you avoid the natural resistance that comes from a direct order, you're also laying the groundwork for your child to develop the ability to exercise self-control whether or not there's an adult telling her what to do. A valuable lesson indeed. You're offering your child useful knowledge for the future, in place of a rule that might be followed only when you're around to enforce it. Instead of, stop banging on that keyboard, you're going to break it. To which the inevitable reply is an offended, no, I'm not. Give information. Keyboards are delicate. All they need is a very light touch. Instead of, you left the cap off the glue stick again. Great. Give information. Glue sticks dry out very quickly when they're not capped. Instead of, get your seatbelt on or I'm not driving you to your friend's house. Give information. The law is everyone has to be belted in before we can drive. Instead of, what are you thinking? Don't leave the cheese on the chair like that. Give information. The cheese is in reach of the dog. Part of the beauty of using this tool is that it's not too irritating when it doesn't work. When you give a child a direct order, buckle your seatbelt now, and she doesn't comply, it's infuriating. But when you give her information and she doesn't act on it, you can move on to another tool without feeling the sting of direct defiance. You'll be in a better mood to try something else. Maria's story, airmail. We were coming home and Benjamin wanted to get the mail from the mailbox. 
he carried it inside and immediately threw it up in the air. Instead of my usual, hey, that's not okay, you need to pick it all up. I said, Benny, the mail belongs on the desk. He gathered it all up and put it on the desk. Tool number five, say it with a word or a gesture. Much of what we say to our children when we're trying to control their behavior is a repeat performance. They've heard it all before, many times. Let's face it, kids tune out lectures. Grown-ups are no different. Which would you rather hear as you leave this room at the end of the workshop session? You guys left the chairs out again. How many times do I have to tell you? There's no maid to clean this classroom after we leave. Or, chairs. If you said it the first way, I'd be tempted to throw the chair at the back of your head, said Tony. I will remember that. Hey, I only said I'd be tempted, Tony reassured me. I probably wouldn't actually do it. But seriously, I can hear the difference. When you say chairs, you're giving us the benefit of the doubt. You assume that if you just point out the problem, we'll be glad to fix it. The other way is disrespectful. You're implying that we're lazy, thoughtless people. Yes, you cut to the heart of the matter. It's more than a tool. It's a whole different attitude. You're assuming that your child can tell herself what to do. What happens when your four-year-old hears you say, Apple core? She has to think. Apple core? What about an apple core? Oh, I left it on the couch. I guess I should put it in the garbage. The child tells herself what to do. She doesn't feel bossed around. Now she won't be tempted to throw the apple core at the back of your head. Just be careful that the one word you use is a noun, not a verb. A verb is more likely to sound like a command. Sit, come, quiet. Better for dog training than for child rearing. I asked the group for useful examples. Suggestions came flying. Seatbelt. Instead of, buckle your seatbelt now. Jacket. Instead of, pick your jacket up off the floor and hang it on the hook. Light. Instead of, how many times have I told you to turn the light off after you leave the bathroom? Toothbrushing gesture. Finger to lips gesture. Hand washing gesture. And finally, one of the nicest things about the one word statement is that you can use it when you're feeling happy and relaxed, and you can use it when you're angry. If you've asked your child not to leave her apple cores on the couch a hundred times already, and you just sat down on a slimy, rotten core and are feeling the wetness seep through the seat of your pants, you can stand up and roar, Apple core! It's therapeutic for the parent and not likely to cause long-term psychological damage to a youngster. You expressed your feelings strongly without resorting to character attacks, name-calling, or threats. Sarah's story, A Word to the Wise. 
It's very hard for me not to lecture the kids about leaving food out. It's a pet peeve. Want to hear my speech? You left the milk sitting out again. I've already told you, if you're old enough to take your own snacks out of the refrigerator, then you're old enough to put them away. We're going to have a whole carton of sour milk. Do you realize how much milk costs? I can really go on. The kids always come back with an excuse. It wasn't me. I took it out, but Jake used it last. I don't care who used it last. Just put it away. No fair. Why aren't you telling him to do it? You only tell me. This time, I just pointed and said, Milk. Sophia said, Oh, sorry, and put it away. Five minutes later, Jake left his orange peels on the counter, and I did it again. I pointed and said, Compost. Jake said, Oh, yeah, and grabbed the peels and put them in the compost without a hint of protest. It was really quite amazing. They were so cooperative when I left out the lecture. My irritation dissolved, and I ended up feeling very warmly toward them. Tool number six. Describe what you see. Sometimes a single word is not enough. You may need to string a few together. If you can restrict yourself to a simple description without adding an irritating command or accusation, you may find your child willing to help out. Instead of, don't walk away and leave your jacket on the floor. I'm not going to pick it up for you. Describe, I see a jacket on the floor. Instead of, you're making a big mess. Clean that up or the paints are going away. Describe, I see paint dripping. Instead of, get back here, you're half naked. Describe. I see a boy who was almost in his pajamas. He has the shirt on and soon, the pants. Very important point. Appreciate progress before describing what's left to do. As you may have noticed in the last example, when you describe what you see, it helps to describe the positive instead of focusing on the negative. Describe the progress that you see before pointing out what's left to be done. Instead of, I see you haven't finished the cleanup, you can say, I see almost all of the cars and blocks have been put away. There's only one dump truck and a few road pieces left to go. Tool number seven. Describe how you feel. As parents and teachers, we expect ourselves to be endlessly patient with children, to take deep breaths, count to 10, visualize world peace, to stay calm and in control at all times. It's not realistic. We are humans, not robots. It's not a good idea to pretend to be calm until we explode, and most of us will explode eventually. It can be helpful for a child to know what another person is feeling. Kids need to know when their parents or teachers are frightened, frustrated, or angry. It's hard for them to figure out what's going on when our words don't match our emotions. When you describe how you feel, 
you're not only giving children important information, you're also modeling a vocabulary of emotions that they can use when they are frustrated, upset, or scared. Michael's story. A pressing concern. I was ironing a shirt when Jamie asked me to help him make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Normally, I would have stopped ironing to do it. I'd have to unplug the iron and put it away so Kara couldn't touch it. But then I realized I didn't want to do that. So I told him, I'll get frustrated if I don't finish this shirt first. I can help you as soon as I finish ironing the sleeves. Jamie said, okay, Dad. And then he stuck around to watch me iron. I would never have thought to tell him my feelings before this class. It's so strange to me that I didn't learn to say things like, I'm frustrated until I was 34 years old, and my son already knows that at four. He's way ahead of me. Joanna's story. No fear, mountaineer. My son Dan had no sense of fear as a child. My attempts to impress upon him a sense of his own mortality rolled off him like water off a duck's back. When we hiked, I often found myself warning him not to go too near the edge of a drop-off because you could fall and get hurt. His standard reply, a breezy, no, I won't. It worked much better to tell him, I get scared when I see a boy so close to the edge. I worry about broken bones. I'm okay if you go up to this point, but no farther. If he's in his usual agreeable mood, he's happy to oblige. If he's not, I just have to move him to a less precipitous area. He cannot be convinced to be afraid, but he's generally willing to make accommodations for his nervous mother. Maria's story. Cain and Isabel. Ever since I had a second child, it's been like Cain and Abel in my house. When Benjamin hurts Isabel, I go crazy. I usually start yelling whatever comes into my head. Don't shove your sister. She's just a baby. You hurt her. That's mean. He reacts very inappropriately. Sometimes he actually laughs in my face. This week, I've started telling him my feelings instead. When I see one child hurting another child, I get very upset. I have to admit, it works. He stops, and he doesn't laugh or run away. Last night at bedtime, he told me his feelings. He was jumping on the bed saying, I'm angry at you, with one word for each jump. I could guess why. Isabel had a fever and was on my lap all day. I told Benjamin, it's annoying to have a sick sister. She gets all mama's attention. He jumped until he collapsed on the bed with me admiring each jump. Oh my gosh, you almost touched the ceiling. You almost flew like a bird. You almost went to outer space. I told him, you're getting good at putting your angry feelings into words instead of hitting. That's not easy to do. He crawled into my lap and gave me a hug. I feel like this kind of language is helping us get back to the close connection we had before Isabel was born, when he became the rough older brother and I became the angry mother. Very important point. When expressing anger or frustration, 
Use the word I. Avoid the word you. When Maria expressed her angry feelings to Benjamin in that last story, she did it in a particularly skillful way. She completely avoided the word you. She said, When I see one child hurting another, I get upset. What she didn't say was, When I see you hurting your sister. When expressing annoyance, irritation, or anger, it's important to banish the word you. The you is accusatory. As soon as a child hears you, he feels defensive. He may respond by arguing, laughing inappropriately, running away, or getting angry in return. If we can avoid you altogether, we're much more likely to get a cooperative attitude. There's a world of difference between, look at this mess you made, and I don't like to see food on the floor. To the first statement, a child is likely to respond, I didn't do it. Why are you yelling at me? It was Johnny's fault. Who cares? The second statement allows a child to think to himself, Uh-oh, Mom really doesn't want crackers on the carpet. I'd better pick them up. When you see a child doing something dangerous, it doesn't usually help to say, Stop that. You're going to hurt yourself. You will most likely get the classic reply, No, I'm not. It's more effective to describe your feelings without the word you. I get scared when I see people jumping around near the stove while I'm cooking. I worry about burns. When your child demands, give me juice, don't bother telling her, you're rude. Calling her rude is not going to help her learn to be polite. She'll just learn to say, you're rude too. It's more useful to tell her how you feel. I don't like being yelled at. That doesn't make me feel helpful. I like to hear, Mom, can I have some juice, please? Kids often respond well when we give them the words they can use to get what they want. The younger the child is, the more explicit you can be about giving him the language you prefer to hear. Very important point. Express strong anger sparingly. It can feel like an attack. Even if you use the perfect wording, it's difficult for a young child to handle strong negative emotions from an adult. Use words like angry and furious sparingly. It's easier to hear words like upset or frustrated or I don't like it when without feeling attacked. I remember a workshop member telling me she was frustrated that we always ended the workshop late. She explained that she often had to miss the end of the session because she needed to get home in time to relieve her babysitter. I was chagrined. I thought I was being accommodating by starting late, but it turns out I was making it more difficult for this mom who had to leave on time. I apologized to her and resolved to announce to the group that we would honor our start time. But what if this mom had approached me by saying that she was furious with me for starting late? I'm sure my reaction would have been different. I would have felt attacked and perhaps wondered if she might be a bit unbalanced. I might have even tried to avoid her in the future. Save your outrage for those times when it's unavoidable. 
Your kid smacked you in the nose, covered the cat in molasses, flushed your wedding ring down the toilet. Fury is not a useful everyday seasoning for a relationship. Tool number eight, write a note. When you find yourself repeating the same plea again and again until you're sick of your own voice, it may be time to write a note. Don't worry if your child doesn't know how to read. The written word has a mysterious power that spoken words do not. A note can be more effective than a nagging voice. Joanna's story. An invitation to bathe. One repeat battle in my home that was eased by note writing was the dreaded bath time. You can bodily throw a child in the tub, but it takes a toll on your back. And my kids found so many different ways to resist and procrastinate, I'd be weary and irritable before even starting. I found myself wondering, why are children expected to be clean? How much can I get away with? Days? Weeks? Would their teachers notice? I solved this particular dilemma with a formal notice. I wrote out an appointment card for bath time. I offered various options, the 6 p.m. slot, the 6.15 slot, the 6.30 slot. The 6 p.m. slot was on special offer with bubbles. The 6.15 slot offered a happy hour with carrots and rubber fish. All the child had to do was check a box with a marker. They each happily did so after giving serious thought to their options. I was amazed at how well it worked. All I had to do was brandish the card and say, your 6 p.m. bath is ready, sir. Sarah's story. Hours of operation. I try to get up earlier than the kids so I can have my coffee and read the paper for 20 minutes before going into action. I really need that transition time. But Mia has been sneaking downstairs early. When I tell her it's not time to come down to the kitchen yet, she fools around, putting one foot in the kitchen and then running back to the stairs. She has this kind of cute, playful look on her face. I'd throw myself in front of a bus for my daughter, but I can't stand it when she does this. I just want those few minutes. This week, I wrote a note on a big piece of paper and strung it across the bottom step. It said kitchen opens at 7 o'clock. When Mia came down, I asked her, did you see the sign? Mommy, I don't know how to read. Do you want me to read it to you? Okay. I read it to her. She got her timer. I set it for her, and she went back upstairs and waited until 7 o'clock. Tool number nine. Take action without insult. None of these tools will work for every child in every situation. You're still in charge of the zoo, and you do what you have to do to keep it afloat. Let's imagine the zoo is on a boat to make this metaphor work. It could be kind of like Noah's Ark. The final tool of this chapter is to take action without insult. If your child refuses to wear his bike helmet, in spite of your brilliant use of playfulness, choice, and information giving, you can say, 
I'm putting the bike away for now. You're in no mood to have your head squeezed by a helmet, and I can't let you ride without one. If your child keeps pounding on your touchscreen, in spite of your protest that it is delicate, you can remove it, saying, I see you have a lot of energy. I'm worried that the screen could break. Let's find something to play with that can take some rough treatment. If your child can't resist throwing gravel in the park, in spite of your efforts to offer tempting alternatives, you can say, I'm taking you home now. I don't want anyone to get hit by a rock, even a little one. If your child wants to help put pancake batter in the pan, but despite friendly reminders, you can't convince him not to jump around at the stove, you can say, I can't cook with you now. I'm too worried about burns. If your child refuses to get in his car seat, I can see the seat belt is uncomfortable. You feel freer without it. I can't take you to your friend's house without the belt buckled. Or, I don't want to be late for work. I'm buckling you in. I know how much you hate it. If your student is flicking the paintbrush full of wet paint at his seatmates, I can see you're in no mood for keeping paint on the paper right now. I can't let you splatter the other kids. Let's move you to the Play-Doh table. You can squeeze it, pound it, roll it, or smash it flat. Notice that in all these examples, the child isn't being scolded or accused. The adult is describing her own feelings and actions. She's standing her ground, enforcing a limit, or stating her values. It had been a long session. The group was looking a little glassy-eyed. I heard a sigh. Finally, Anna expressed the feeling that was in the air. Anna, this is so much work. I mean, everything here is such a song and dance. Choices, playfulness, making weather charts, and buying special clocks. Where does it end? When can I just tell my kid what to do and he does it? I shrugged. It is kind of a three-ring circus. Kids are exhausting. Little kids are exceptionally exhausting. For me, it's more fun when we're all tired and cheerful instead of tired and irritable. These tools all help you achieve the former. And it does get easier. The older they get, the more they can be in charge of themselves, especially if they've had the practice of making choices and being in charge of their own behavior when they're younger. And for those times when you don't have the patience or energy to come up with a really terrific tool, you still have credit in the bank from all those times you did make the effort. The payoff for taking that extra step to engage our kids' cooperation without orders, bribes, and threats is enormous. Study after study has found that young children who are not constantly ordered around are much more likely to cooperate with simple requests from a parent, for example, cleaning up toys when asked, than children who are micromanaged and controlled much of the time. They're also more likely to cooperate with another adult, such as a teacher, and more likely to follow rules when no adults are present to control them. Self-control can only be developed by practice, not by force. Reminder. Tools for Engaging Cooperation.
Number one, be playful. Make it a game. Can we get all the cars into the box before the timer beeps? Ready, set, go. Make inanimate objects talk. I've an empty sock. I need a foot in me. Use silly voices and accents. I am your robot. Must buckle seat belt now. Pretend. We need to climb this slippery mountain into the car seat. Play the incompetent fool. Oh, dear. Where does this sleeve go? Over your head? No? On the arm? This is so confusing. Thank you for helping me. Number two, offer a choice. Do you want to hop to the tub like a bunny or crawl to the tub like a crab? Number three, put the child in charge. Johnny, would you set the timer and let us know when it's time to leave? Number four, give information. Tissues go in the trash. Number five, say it with a word or a gesture. Trash. Number six, describe what you see. I see most of the blocks put away in the toy box. There are only a few blocks left to go. Number seven. Describe how you feel. I don't like food thrown on the floor. Number eight, write a note. Put me on your head while riding. Love, your bike helmet. Number nine, take action without insult. I'm putting the paint away for now. I can't let you splatter the other kids. Very important points. Don't turn a choice into a threat. Make sure both options are acceptable to you and your child. Appreciate progress before describing what's left to do. When expressing anger or frustration, use the word I. Avoid the word you. Express strong anger sparingly. It can feel like an attack. Chapter 3, Tools for Resolving Conflict, Avoiding Combat on the Home Front, Replacing Punishment with More Peaceful, Effective Solutions, Joanna. What do you do when a child deliberately does something you've just told him not to? He steals candy, pulls the dog's tail, pinches the baby, upends the egg carton just to see the beautiful sight of a dozen raw yolks oozing out of their smashed shells into the crack between the stove and the counter. What happens when you've tried all the tools in Chapter 2, but your child continues to defy you? Kids can be so frustrating, so irritating, so enraging, that the impulse to punish is hard to resist. You've listened to this book. You've studied it and now you want to throw it at them. Wait, lock yourself in the bathroom and take a look at this chapter before you start flinging and the pages start flying. Consider this scenario. You take your children to the park one sunny afternoon. 
Before you leave the house, you remind your four-year-old that he needs to hold your hand in the parking lot and stay in sight at the playground. And don't forget to take turns and play nice. What do you do when little Buckaroo decides to ignore those rules? He squirms away and zips through the parking lot, weaving between the cars. Once in the playground, he runs around with the stroller, bashing it into the playground equipment. At the top of the slide, he impatiently shoves his two-year-old sister, who is taking too long to work up the courage to go down. Should he get a smack on the bottom? Should he lose out on a treat from the ice cream truck? Should he be sent to his room for a timeout when he gets home to contemplate his crimes? Most adults agree that something must be done. A child cannot be allowed to put himself in danger and freely terrorize all those around him. People say, kids need consequences. There's a time and a place for punishment, and this is the time and place. This kid is just not getting it. He needs to be taught a lesson. It feels like common sense. Before we start dutifully doling out consequences and punishment, I'd like to take a moment to define our terms. Just what do we mean by natural or logical consequences? And what lessons are we teaching when we punish? Let's start with natural consequences. We can't give a child a natural consequence. The only truly natural consequences are the ones found in nature. They happen without us having to do anything. If you pull a dog's ear, you may get bitten. If you stick your hand in a fire, you get burned. If you step off the edge of a cliff, gravity will cause you to plummet to the ground below. As for logical consequences, the logic is highly debatable. If you continually arrive late for my workshop, despite my warning that lateness is unacceptable, I may find it logical to lock you out of my classroom. Or perhaps it would be logical to keep you locked in after class for the same number of minutes you were late. Or maybe my logic demands that you miss out on the snacks. As you may be starting to suspect, these are not true exercises in logic. They're really more of a free association, where we try to think of a way to make the wrongdoer suffer. We hope that the suffering will motivate the offender to do better in the future. Let's be honest. From the point of view of the child, getting a consequence and getting a punishment are two different names for the same thing. Even if we modernize it by calling it a natural or a logical consequence. The traditional parent may say, You are being sent to your room, losing your computer privileges, getting a spanking, as a punishment for your behavior. The modern parent may say, You are being sent to your room, losing computer privileges, getting a spanking, as a consequence of your behavior. The child is experiencing the same emotional distress or physical pain no matter what label we paste on our actions. Either way, our intent is to find some way to make the child suffer, or at least feel bad, in the hope that she will be discouraged from repeating her unacceptable behavior. For the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to use the term punishment to refer to any unpleasant experience imposed by an adult with the intent of changing a child's behavior. I asked my workshop group why people punish kids. 
Here are their responses. Michael. Listen, some boys are hard-headed. I was a pretty wild kid. I didn't listen to my mom when she told me not to do something. She had to hit me just to get my attention. Tony. We can't give up our authority as adults just to be nice. I don't advocate physical abuse, but sometimes punishment is the only thing a child understands. A smack on the bottom is worth it if it stops a child from running into the street. Sarah. I don't believe in punishment as a regular, everyday tool, but kids have to know there's a limit, don't they? As a teacher, I don't necessarily know why a child is acting out, but that doesn't mean I can give him a pass on following the rules. We would never hit a child at school, but they can lose privileges or be sent to the timeout corner. Maria. Sometimes a child does something dangerous or hurtful, but he doesn't seem to care. Giving him a consequence makes him feel the pain so that he won't do it again, even if he isn't old enough to understand why. They need to know they can't just get away with doing anything they want.